Chapter Ten of the Promised Land. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Promised Land by Mary Anton. Chapter Ten. Initiation. It is not worth while to refer to voluminous school statistics to see just how many green pupils entered school last September, not knowing the days of the week in English, who next February will be declaiming patriotic verses in honor of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. With a foreign accent, indeed, but with plenty of enthusiasm, it is enough to know that this hundredfold miracle is common to the schools in every part of the United States where immigrants are received. And if I was one of Chelsea's hundred in 1894, it was only to be expected, since I was one of the older of the Green children, and had had a start in my irregular schooling in Russia, and was carried along by a tremendous desire to learn, and had my family to cheer me on. I was not a bit too large for my little chair and desk in the baby class, but my mind, of course, was too mature by six or seven years for the work. So, as soon as I could understand what the teacher said in class, I was advanced to the second grade. This was within a week after Miss Nixon took me in hand. But I do not mean to give my dear teacher all the credit for my rapid progress, nor even half the credit. I shall divide it with her on behalf of my race and my family. I was Jew enough to have an aptitude for language in general, and to bend my mind earnestly to my task. I was Anton enough to read each lesson with my heart, which gave me an inkling of what was coming next, and so carried me along by leaps and bounds. As for the teacher, she could best explain what theories she followed in teaching us foreigners to read. I can only describe the method, which was so simple that I wish holiness could be taught in the same way. There were about half a dozen of us beginners in English, in age from six to fifteen. Miss Nixon made a special class of us, and aided us so skillfully and earnestly in our endeavors to see a cat, and hear a dog bark, and look at the hen, that we turned over page after page of the ravishing history, eager to find out how the common world looked, smelled, and tasted in the strange speech. The teacher knew just when to let us help each other out with a word in her own tongue. It happened that we were all Jews, and so working all together, we actually covered more ground in a lesson than the native classes, composed entirely of the little tots. But we stuck, stuck fast at the definite article, and sometimes the lesson resolved itself into a species of lingual gymnastics, in which we all looked as if we meant to bite our tongues off. Miss Nixon was pretty, and she must have looked well with her white teeth showing in the act. But at the time, I was too solemnly occupied to admire her looks. I did take great pleasure in her smile of approval, whenever I pronounced well, and her patience and perseverance in struggling with us over that thick little word are becoming to her even now. After fifteen years, it is not her fault if any of us today give a buzzing sound to the dreadful English th. I shall never have a better opportunity to make public declaration of my love for the English language. I am glad that American history runs chapter for chapter the way it does, for thus America came to be the country I love so dearly. I am glad most of all that the Americans began by being Englishmen, for thus did I come to inherit this beautiful language in which I think. It seems to me that in any other language happiness is not so sweet, logic is not so clear. I am not sure that I could believe my neighbors as I do if I thought about them in un-English words. I could almost say that my conviction of immortality is bound up with the English of its promise, and as I am attached to my prejudices, I must love the English language. 
Whenever the teachers did anything special to help me over my private difficulties, my gratitude went out to them, silently. It meant so much to me that they halted the lesson to give me a lift, that I needs must love them for it. Dear Miss Carroll, of the second grade, would be amazed to hear what small things I remember, all because I was so impressed at the time with her readiness and sweetness in taking notice of my difficulties. Says Miss Carroll, looking straight at me, If Johnny has three marbles, and Charlie has twice as many, how many marbles has Charlie? I raise my hand for permission to speak. Teacher, I don't know vat is twice. Teacher beckons me to her, and whispers to me the meaning of the strange word, and I am able to write the sum correctly. It's all in the day's work with her. With me, it's a special act of kindness and efficiency. She whom I found in the next grade became so dear a friend that I can hardly name her with the rest, though I mention none of them lightly. Her approval was always dear to me, first because she was teacher, and afterwards as long as she lived, because she was my Miss Dillingham. Great was my grief, therefore, when shortly after my admission to her class, I incurred discipline, the first and next to the last time in my school career. The class was repeating in chorus the Lord's Prayer, heads bowed on desks. I was doing my best to keep up by the sound. My mind could not go beyond the word hallowed, for which I had not found the meaning. In the middle of the prayer a Jewish boy across the aisle trod on my foot to get my attention. "'You must not say that,' he admonished in a solemn whisper. "'It's Christian.' I whispered back that it wasn't, and went on to the Amen. I did not know but what he was right, but the name of Christ was not in the prayer, and I was bound to do everything that the class did. If I had any Jewish scruples, they were lagging away behind my interest in school affairs. How American this was! Two pupils side by side in the schoolroom, each holding to his own opinion, but both submitting to the common law, for the boy at least bowed his head as the teacher ordered. But all Miss Dillingham knew of it was that two of her pupils whispered during morning prayer, and she must discipline them. So I was degraded from the honor row to the lowest row and it was many a day before I forgave that young missionary. It was not enough for my vengeance that he suffered punishment with me. Teacher, of course, heard us both defend ourselves. But there was a time and a place for religious arguments, and she meant to help us remember that point. I remember to this day what a struggle we had over the word water. Miss Dillingham and I. It seemed as if I could not give the sound of W. I said, Vater, every time. Patiently my teacher worked with me, inventing mouth exercises for me, to get my stubborn lips to produce that W, and when at last I could say village and water, and rapid alternation, without misplacing the two initials, that memorable word was sweet on my lips, for we had conquered, and teacher was pleased. Getting a language in this way, word by word, has a charm that may be set against the disadvantages. It is like gathering a posy blossom by blossom, bring the bouquet into your chamber and these nasturniums stand for the whole flaming carnival of them tumbling over the fence out there these yellow pansies recall the velvet crescent of color glowing under the bay window this spray of honeysuckle smells like the wind-tossed masses of it on the porch ripe and bee-laden the whole garden in a glass tumbler so it is with one who gathers words loving them particular words remain associated with important occasions in the learner's mind I could thus write a history of my English vocabulary that should be at the same time an account of my comings and goings, my mistakes and my triumphs, during the years of my initiation. If I was eager and diligent, my teachers did not sleep. As fast as my knowledge of English allowed, they advanced me from grade to grade, 
without reference to the usual schedule of promotions. My father was right, when he often said, in discussing my prospects, that ability would be promptly recognized in the public schools. Rapid as was my progress, on account of the advantages with which I started, some of the other green pupils were not far behind me, within a grade or two, by the end of the year. My brother, whose childhood had been one hideous nightmare, what with the stupid Rebbe, the cruel whip, and the general repression of life in the pale, surprised my father by the progress he made under intelligent, sympathetic guidance. Indeed, he soon had a reputation in the school that the American boys envied, and all through the school course he more than held his own with pupils of his age. So much for the right and wrong way of doing things. There is a record of my early progress in English much better than my recollections, however accurate and definite these may be. I have several reasons for introducing it here. First, it shows what the Russian Jew can do with an adopted language. Next, it proves that vigilance of our public school teachers of which I spoke. And last, I am proud of it. That is an unnecessary confession, but I could not be satisfied to insert the record here, with my vanity unavowed. This is the document, copied from an educational journal, a tattered copy of which lies in my lap as I write, treasured for fifteen years, you see, by my vanity. Editor, Primary Education. This is the uncorrected paper of a Russian child twelve years old, who had studied English only four months. She had never, until September, been to school even in her own country, and has heard English spoken only at school. I shall be glad if the paper of my pupil, and the above explanation may appear in your paper. M. S. Dillingham. Chelsea, Massachusetts. Snow. Snow is frozen moisture, which comes from the clouds. Now the snow is coming down in feather flakes, which makes nice snowballs. But there is still one kind of snow more. This kind of snow is called snow crystals, for it comes down in little curly balls. These snow crystals aren't quite as good for snowballs as feather flakes, for they, the snow crystals, are dry, so they can't keep together as feather flakes do. The snow is dear to some children, for they like sleighing. As I said at the top, the snow comes from the clouds. Now the trees are bare, and no flowers are to see in the fields and gardens. We all know why, and the whole world seems like a sleep without the happy bird songs which left us till spring. But the snow which drove away all these pretty and happy things try, as I think, not to make us at all unhappy. They cover up the branches of the trees, the fields, the gardens, and houses, and the whole world looks like dressed in a beautiful white, instead of green, dress, with the sky looking down on it with a pale face. And so the people can find some joy in it too, without the happy summer. Mary Anton. And now that it stands there, with her name over it, I am ashamed of my flippant talk about vanity. More to me than all the praise I could hope to win by the conquest of fifty languages is the association of this dear friend with my earliest efforts at writing, and it pleases me to remember that to her I owe my very first appearance in print. Vanity is the least part of it, when I remember how she called me to her desk, one day after school was out, and showed me my composition— my own words, that I had written out of my own head, printed out, clear black and white, with my name at the end. Nothing so wonderful had ever happened to me before. My whole consciousness was suddenly transformed. I suppose that was the moment when I became a writer. I always loved to write. I wrote letters whenever I had an excuse. Yet it had never occurred to me to sit down and write my thoughts for no person in particular, merely to put the word on paper. 
But now, as I read my own words, in a delicious confusion, the idea was born. I stared at my name. Mary Anton. Was that really I? The printed characters composing it seemed strange to me all of a sudden. If that was my name, and those were the words out of my own head, what relation did it all have to me, who was alone there with Miss Dillingham, and the printed page between us? Why, it meant that I could write again, and see my writing printed for people to read. I could write many, many, many things. I could write a book. The idea was so huge, so bewildering, that my mind scarcely could accommodate it. I do not know what my teacher said to me, probably very little. It was her way to say only a little, and look at me, and trust me to understand. Once she had occasion to lecture me about living a shut-up life, she wanted me to go outdoors. I had been repeatedly scolded and reproved on that score by other people, but I had only laughed, saying that I was too happy to change my ways. But when Miss Dillingham spoke to me, I saw that it was a serious matter, and yet she only said a few words, and looked at me with that smile of hers that was only half a smile, and the rest a meaning. Another time she had a great question to ask me, touching my life to the quick. She merely put her question and was silent, but I knew what answer she expected, and not being able to give it then, I went away sad and reproved. Years later I had my triumphant answer, but she was no longer there to receive it. And so her eyes look at me, from the picture on the mantel there, with a reproach I no longer merit. I ought to go back and strike out all that talk about vanity. What reason have I to be vain, when I reflect how at every step I was petted, nursed, and encouraged? I did not even discover my own talent. It was discovered first by my father in Russia, and next by my friend in America. What did I ever do but write when they told me to write? I suppose my grandfather, who drove a spavined horse through lonely country lanes, sat in the shade of crisp-leaved oaks to refresh himself with a bit of black bread, and an acorn falling beside him, in the immense stillness, shook his heart with the echo, and left him wondering. I suppose my father stole away from the synagogue one long festival day, and stretched himself out in the sun-warmed grass, and lost himself in dreams that made the world of men unreal when he returned to them. And so, what is there left for me to do, who do not have to drive a horse, nor interpret ancient lore, but put my grandfather's question into words, and set to music my father's dream? The tongue am I of those who lived before me, as those that are to come will be the voice of my unspoken thoughts. And so, who shall be applauded, if the song be sweet, if the prophecy be true? I never heard of any one who was so watched and coaxed, so passed along from hand to helping hand, as was I. I always had friends. They sprang up everywhere, as if they had stood waiting for me to come. So here was my teacher, the moment she saw that I could give a good paraphrase of her talk on snow, bent on finding out what more I could do. One day she asked me if I had ever written poetry. I had not, but I went home and tried. I believe it was more snow, and I know it was wretched. I wish I could produce a copy of that early effusion. It would prove that my judgment is not severe. Wretched it was, worse a great deal, than realms of poetry that is written by children about whom there is no fuss made. But Miss Dillingham was not discouraged. She saw that I had no idea of meter, so she proceeded to teach me. We repeated miles of poetry together, smooth lines that sang themselves, mostly out of Longfellow. Then I would go home and write, oh, about the snow in our backyard. But when Miss Dillingham came to read my verses, they limped and they lagged and they dragged, and there was no tune that would fit them. 
At last, the moment of illumination, I saw where my trouble lay. I had supposed that my lines matched when they had an equal number of syllables, taking no account of accent. Now I knew better. Now I could write poetry. The everlasting snow melted at last, and the mud puddles dried in the spring sun, and the grass on the common was green, and still I wrote poetry. Again, I wish I had some example of my springtime rhapsodies, the veriest rubbish of the sort that ever a child perpetrated. Lizzie McDee, who had red hair and freckles, and a Sunday school manner on weekdays, and was below me in the class, did a great deal better. We used to compare verses, and while I do not remember that I ever had the grace to own that she was the better poet, I do know that I secretly wondered why the teachers did not invite her to stay after school and study poetry, while they took so much pains with me. But so it always was with me. Somebody did something for me all the time. Making fair allowance for my youth, retarded education, and strangeness to the language, it must still be admitted that I never wrote a good verse. But I loved to read it. My half hours with Miss Dillingham were full of delight for me, quite apart from my newborn ambition to become a writer. What then was my joy when Miss Dillingham, just before locking up her desk one evening, presented me with a volume of Longfellow's poems? It was a thin volume of selections, but to me it was a bottomless treasure. I had never owned a book before. The sense of possession alone was a source of bliss, and this book I already knew and loved. And so Miss Dillingham, who was my first American friend, and who first put my name in print, was also the one to start my library. Deep is my regret when I consider that she was gone before I had given much of an account of all her gifts of love and service to me. About in the middle of the year I was promoted to the grammar school. Then it was that I walked on air, for I said to myself that I was a student now, in earnest, not merely a schoolgirl learning to spell and cipher. I was going to learn out-of-the-way things, things that had nothing to do with ordinary life, things to know. When I walked home afternoons, with a great big geography book under my arm, it seemed to me that the earth was conscious of my step. Sometimes I carried home half the books in my desk, not because I should need them, but because I loved to hold them, and also because I loved to be seen carrying books. It was a badge of scholarship, and I was proud of it. I remembered the days in Vitebsk when I used to watch my cousin Herschel start for school in the morning. Every thread of his student's uniform, every worn copy in his satchel, glorified in my envious eyes. And now I was myself as he, I greater than he, for I knew English, and I could write poetry. If my head was not turned at this time, it was because I was so busy from morning till night. My father did his best to make me vain and silly. He made much of me to every chance caller, boasting of my progress at school, and of my exalted friends, the teachers. For a school-teacher was no ordinary mortal in his eyes. She was a superior being, set above the common run of men, by her erudition and devotion to higher things. That a school-teacher could be shallow or petty, or greedy for pay, was a thing that he could not have been brought to believe at this time. And he was right, if he could only have stuck to it in later years, when a new-born pessimism, fathered by his perception that in America, too, some things need mending, threw him to the opposite extreme of opinion, crying that nothing in the American scheme of society or government was worth tinkering. He surely was right in his first appraisal of the teacher. The mean sort of teachers are not teachers at all. They are self-seekers who take up teaching as a business, to support themselves and keep their hands white. 
These same persons, did they keep store or drive a milk wagon or wash babies for a living, would be respectable. As trespassers on a noble profession, they are worth no more than the books and slates and desks over which they preside, so much furniture to be had by the gross. They do not love their work. They contribute nothing to the higher development of their pupils. They busy themselves, not with research into the science of teaching, but with organizing political demonstrations to advance the cause of selfish candidates for public office who promise them rewards. The true teachers are of another strain. Apostles all of an ideal, they go to their work in a spirit of love and inquiry, seeking not comfort, not position, not age-old pensions, but truth that is the soul of wisdom, the joy of big-eyed children, the food of hungry youth. They were the true teachers who used to come to me on Arlington Street, so my father had reason to boast of the distinction brought upon his house. For the school-teacher, in her trim, unostentatious dress, was an uncommon visitor in our neighborhood, and the talk that passed in the bare little parlor over the grocery store would not have been entirely comprehensible to our next-door neighbor. In the grammar school I had as good teachings as I had in the primary. It seems to me, in retrospect, that it was as good, on the whole, as the public school ideals of the time made possible. When I recall how I was taught geography, I see, indeed, that there was room for improvement, occasionally both in the substance and in the method of instruction. But I know of at least one teacher of Chelsea who realized this, for I met her, eight years later, at a great metropolitan university that holds a summer session for the benefit of school-teachers who want to keep up with the advance in their science. Very likely they no longer teach geography entirely within doors, and by rote as I was taught. Fifteen years is plenty of time for progress. When I joined the first grammar grade, the class had had half-year's start of me, but it was not long before I found my place near the head. In all branches except geography, it was genuine progress. I overtook the youngsters in their study of numbers, spelling, reading, and composition. In geography, I merely made a bluff, but I did not know it. Neither did my teacher. I came up to such tests as she put me. The lesson was on Chelsea, which was right. Geography, like charity, should begin at home. Our text ran on for a paragraph or so on the location, boundaries, natural features, and industries of the town, with a bit of local history thrown in. We were to learn all these interesting facts, and be prepared to write them out from memory the next day. I went home and learned, learned every word of the text, every comma, every footnote. When the teacher had read my paper, she marked it E.E. E. e was for excellent, but my paper was absolutely perfect, and must be put in a class by itself. The teacher exhibited my paper before the class, with some remarks about the diligence that could overtake in a week pupils who had half a year's start. I took it all as modestly as I could, never doubting that I was indeed a very bright little girl, and getting to be very learned to boot. I was perfect in geography— a most erudite subject. But what was the truth? The words that I repeated so accurately on my paper had about as much meaning to me as the words of the Psalms I used to chant in Hebrew. I got an idea that the city of Chelsea, and the world in general, was laid out flat, like the common, and shaved oft at the ends, to allow the north, south, east, and west to snuggle up close, like the frame around a picture. If I looked at the map, I was utterly bewildered. I could find no correspondence between the picture and the verbal explanations. With words I was safe. I could learn any number of words by heart, and some time or other they would pop out of the medley, clothed with meaning. Chelsea, I read, was bounded on all sides. 
bounded, appealed to my imagination, by various things that I had never identified, much as I had roamed about the town. I immediately pictured these remote boundaries as a six-foot fence in a good state of preservation, with the Mystic River, the towns of Everett and Revere, and East Boston Creek, rejoicing on the south, west, north, and east of it, respectively, that they had got inside, while the rest of the world peeped in enviously through a knot-hole. In the middle of this cherished area piano factories, or was it shoe factories, proudly reared their chimneys, while the population promenaded on a rope-walk, saluted at every turn by the benevolent inmates of the soldiers' home on the top of Powderhorn Hill. Perhaps the fault was partly mine, because I would always reduce everything to a picture. Partly it may have been because I had not had time to digest the general definitions and explanations at the beginning of the book. Still, I can take but little of the blame, when I consider how I fared through my geography, right to the end of the grammar school course. I did in time disentangle the symbolism of the orange revolving on a knitting needle from the astronomical facts in the case, but it took years of training under a master of the subject to rid me of my distrust of the map as a representation of the earth. To this day I sometimes blunder back to my early impression that any given portion of the earth's surface is constructed upon a skeleton consisting of two crossed bars, terminating in arrowheads which pin the cardinal points into place, and if I want to find any desired point of the compass, I am inclined to throw myself flat on my nose, my head due north, and my outstretched arms seeking the east and west respectively. For in the schoolroom, as far as the study of the map went, we began with the symbol, and stuck to the symbol. No teacher of geography I ever had, except the master I referred to, took the pains to ascertain whether I had any sense of the facts for which the symbol stood. Outside the study of maps, geography consisted of statistics, tables of population, imports and exports, manufacturers, and degrees of temperature, dimensions of rivers, mountains, and political states, with lists of minerals, plants, and plagues native to any given part of the globe. The only part of the whole subject that meant anything to me was the description of the aspect of foreign lands, and the manners and customs of their peoples, the relation of physiography to human history, what might be called the moral of geography, was not taught at all, or was touched upon in an unimpressive manner. The prevalence of this defect in the teaching of school geography is borne out by the surprise of the college freshmen, who remarked to the professor of geology that it was curious to note how all the big rivers and harbors on the Atlantic coastal plain occurred in the neighborhood of large cities. A little instruction in the elements of chartography, a little practice in the use of the compass and the spirit level, a topographical map of the town common, an excursion with a road map, would have given me a fat round earth in place of my paper ghost, would have illumined the one dark alley in my school life. End of chapter 10